Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden, wishing all of you a happy holiday season. The ALS community, of course, is closing out the year with a last-minute gift from Congress with final passage of the Act for ALS legislation. A huge win. Congratulations to all the ALS advocates out there whose hard work and dedication helped to persuade Congress to pass this important bill. And you don't have to take my word for it. Go back and listen to our conversation earlier this year with Representative Mike Quigley, the chief sponsor of the bill in the House, who talked to us about the power of ALS advocacy. And that, of course, just was just one of the many stories we were able to share this year as we committed to doing whatever it takes to make ALS a livable disease while continuing the search for a cure. That is a fight we will continue into 2022. But before we get there, we wanted to look back one more time on the year that was and revisit some of the impact we have been able to have in the fight against ALS. So join us in revisiting our conversation from earlier this month with ALS Association President and CEO, Colony Balas. We could not have achieved all that we did without your support and efforts, so thank you for all that you do. Have a happy new year. We look forward to continuing the fight with you in 2022. That's a good example of if you're tenacious and you work hard enough, you've got the right information and you've got community support, we, we can move mountains. And that, this was a big mountain to move. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Well, the holiday season is upon us, and with just a few weeks left in 2021, we here at Connecting ALS are taking the opportunity to look back this week and reflect on the progress that has been made just this past year in the fight against ALS. Earlier this week, the ALS Association sent out its annual year-end report, highlighting the impact we have been able to make this year, doing whatever it takes to make ALS a livable disease while continuing the search for a cure. From the work to bring AMX35 to the community as quickly as possible, to the development of a new tool to help speed up the time to diagnosis, to helping families understand their rights and the potential benefits of genetic counseling and testing, to moving the act through ALS in Congress and expanding access to multidisciplinary care, it's been a busy year. This past week, I had an opportunity to talk to Colony Balas, CEO and president of the ALS Association, about the impact we've been able to have in the quest to create a world without ALS. Let's take a listen. Well, Colony, thank you so much for being with us this week. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be with you again. Uh, yeah, we're always excited to have you on the show and uh, particularly this time of year as we're reflecting back on some of the successes that the association had this year and some of the progress that's been made. Uh, as many listeners are aware, the ALS Association's year-end report landed in their inboxes earlier this week, and right. uh, we can share a link to that in the show notes in case they missed it. But before we get to where we are in the fight today, I want to go back to kind of the beginning of 2021 and the ALS Association's commitment to make ALS a livable disease and to do whatever it takes to do so, all while in pursuit of a cure. Take us back to that moment and that commitment and, and kind of the genesis of it and how that informed the work over the past 12 months. Absolutely. Well, thanks. And, and I really hope people have the opportunity to take a look at that year-end report. It, uh, when I started perusing through it and we were putting it together, I realized just how much has been accomplished over the last year in making ALS a livable disease and moving towards that. But uh, to your question about the genesis and, and kind of how that all came to fruition, uh, the ALS Association has uh, 
has a good process of trying to take a step back, look at our strategic plan, look at where we've been and where we wanted to go. And in 2020, it happened to be the time where that process was going to take place anyhow, um, right? So we're, we're buttoning up our last strategic plan. We took a look at it and said, wow, we were really able to accomplish a lot. We, we reached most of the goals that we have put forth and some, some pretty big goals, some that actually made a lot of people nervous that we were going to be, were we going to be able to achieve them or not? And we did. And that was really just a huge team effort. So when we embarked on, on this new planning process for this new strategic plan, of course, we didn't realize we would be also in the middle of a pandemic right. uh, and trying to think about the future and where we wanted to go. And I'll be honest that uh, many people came up to me and Sue Gorman, who is our chair. Well, they didn't physically come up, right? They, right. they zoomed in or called us on our phone and said, hey, you know, given everything going on these days, should we wait to do a plan? You know, should we try to see what, what's going to happen and what the future is going to look like? And we both had the same reaction. ALS doesn't stop. Neither can we. And we couldn't predict the future. I don't think anyone knows now. I, if you've got a crystal ball, I'd love to see it. But there, there was no reason to wait. And we knew at that point we still had to do whatever it takes. And we went through this process with an amazing committee made up of volunteers, people living with ALS, active caregivers of people with ALS, staff members. And we met I don't know. I don't even know how many hours um, and, and did virtual retreats together and all those things. And we, you know, we really started to, to dig in into some details, but there was kind of a seminal moment, I think. And, and many people who are on that committee would, would agree. I, I think they would agree. We were on our retreat. We'd been talking about this for months and putting together things into place. And, and I kind of, stepped back and looked at it and I've been part of all these conversations and Jeremy, I, I looked at it and I thought, does this excite me? You know, is this yeah. is this really challenging us? And that's what I asked the committee. I said, does this excite you? You know, are you does this scare you? Because I think it should scare us a little bit, like the last one. And that moment kind of changed our whole conversation. And we thought, let's think really big. And we went into many more weeks of conversation and really decided we're, we're going to put a, put a mark out there. And we're going to say that we, as, as the ALS Association, want to lead and know that we have to do this as a community, a whole community, to make ALS livable. And it's going to take a whole host of resources and effort and everything that we have now put out over the last several months and how we build a plan that makes ALS a livable disease. And that's, that's really how we got to at least this point today. Yeah. And I want to unpack some of the components of that. And, you know, I know we've had the opportunity on this show to have Dr. Kuldeep Dave, the vice president of research for the association on to talk about, uh, among many things, the, the robust drug development pipeline. Um, right. I know that the, the association currently has 
funding 155 active projects in, in 12 countries around the world, the current commitment of $52 million. And I, I want to focus on, on one project in particular that uh, I know took up a lot of your time over the past year, but that is the development with Amelix and AMX35. Uh, right. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the blood, sweat, and tears that has <laughs> gone into trying to bring that promising treatment to the patient community? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to. And and good news, there was there was definitely no blood, maybe sweat <laughs> tears, but no blood. Fair enough, fair um, enough. You know, I, I think this is a, a really great example of what community can do when there's something promising. And we spent um, a lot of time, effort, and energy working both behind the scenes and um, in front of the camera, trying to really work with FDA and get information from Amelix, from the company, who was very forthcoming with their data, which was really helpful. Um, if we didn't have full transparency on their data and understanding what they were seeing, I'm not sure we could have made such an effort. And that's that's just really important to understand and to know. Dr. Jinsey Andrews and myself uh, met several times with leaders at FDA um, letting them know the concerns from the community, what researchers were thinking when they looked at the data. Um, also, helping um, them to understand what the play was across the globe. You know, I was getting calls from colleagues, uh, whether it's from our northern friends in Canada, our friends over in Europe, and understanding what Health Canada, Canada and EMA were doing and what they were thinking and, and the role and responsibility of us here in the United States and in particular the FDA. So we spent many hours having those conversations and I, I will say that FDA was very open to having those conversations. There was not one time that when we requested a meeting or sent a letter that we didn't get an immediate response and uh, an immediate opportunity to have a meeting with them. And so as a community, I think many of us leaned in together and we saw that also with that open forum that we have, whatever it deals, do whatever it takes. I think that was over the summer, if my memory serves me right. That's right. And that, that I think, really helped to push us over the line and really actually get FDA and Amelix in the room together so that, that they could figure out what was the appropriate journey given the data that they were seeing out of that phase two trial. So... A lot of sweat and tears, but, uh, well, I don't even know about tears, just sweat. And, uh, but, you know, really, that's a good example of if you're tenacious and you work hard enough, you've got the right information and you've got community support, we, we can move mountains. And that, this was a big mountain to move. Yeah, and and folks listening at home can can go back to our conversation we had on this show with with Josh and Justin and, and the team yeah. over at Amelix about their perspective on how we got where we are. You know, Colin, it occurs to me that this is really a synergy between the research world, the advocacy world, and of course, that's not the only thing our advocacy friends were doing this year. Act for ALS moving its way through Congress, our appropriations asks moving their way through Congress. And as you said, all of this happening during a pandemic, can you talk to us a little bit about the role of ALS advocates in terms of making ALS a livable disease in terms of um, you know, enhancing and improving the quality of life for people who are living with ALS? Absolutely. I, I mean, ALS advocates are our number one resource. Yeah, because we're, we're here for you. 
we're here for people living with ALS, people who will be diagnosed in the future, and people who are no longer with us. We're here to serve the caregivers, to serve their families. And it's really through conversations with people living with ALS and their caregivers, their focus program, and some of the other work that we're doing that we we look at what are what are some of the things that we want to tackle legislatively. And you know, so when you talk about Act for ALS. That's where that came from, was really through conversations and, and understanding of what was needed. Uh, we talk about bridging those relationships with the research community as well and understanding kind of where those gaps are. So without our advocates, our program would be much less robust. And on top of it, look, I'm happy to call FDA. I know anyone on our team is happy to pick up the phone and call any member of Congress and talk with their staff and all those things. But I'll tell you, time after time after time, I have heard from congressional members, senators, whomever it is, that say, oh, yeah, I remember that story. And it's when you really put a face and a name and a story and an understanding. Not only have I seen grown men cry, I've seen grown men who are senators cry yeah. um, in some of these meetings, because when you really have an understanding of how it's affecting the people who live in your district, then, then that's when we can change things. So it's that combination of understanding the gaps and then really bringing those stories forward. It's been a little bit more, I would say, challenging. You know, everybody wants to be in person, obviously, but our virtual world has also helped us make even more connections. So in some ways, it's it's been a little bit of a silver lining, too. Yeah, and uh, you can imagine that hybrid approach to advocacy moving forward. Uh, another way that technology has allowed us to continue to serve the community and even reach more people has been through telemedicine. I know a lot of work is going into trying to... Uh, maintain the current standards and some of those flexibilities that were created during the pandemic. Um, but, you know, as we think about serving the, the community that we're here to serve, uh, serving the people living with ALS, you know, I think about some of the new tools that were developed this year, whether it's Think ALS to help speed up the time to diagnosis, the focus surveys that are trying to get to the heart of the issues that matter to people with ALS and their caregivers, the genetic counseling and genetic testing initiative to try and raise awareness and let people know about their rights and, and their abilities to pursue genetic testing if they so choose. And of course, the expansion of the multidisciplinary care centers. Um, that's quite a laundry list, but reflect <laughs> a little bit on the work that's being being done to enable people with ALS to kind of live the lives that they want to live. Yeah, that's great. And it is, it's a longer list, you know, it, it's always amazing to me again, I, whether you're looking at the year end report or other things, you just realize how much work is, is going on. Yeah, I, I look at things like the Think ALS tool, what, that actually came out of one of the focus roundtables that we hosted about a year and a half or so ago. And this idea that we really, if, if we want to think about preventing ALS. We certainly need an earlier time of diagnosis. We want to think about having it, making it a livable disease. We have to think about an earlier diagnosis. And so how do we put the right tools in the hands of both the individual who might be experiencing some symptoms or trying to figure out what's going on, but really the neurologists who maybe have only come across one other case in their practice over 20 years 
of looking at neurology. And that happens a lot, especially in more rural areas or areas where you just don't have a lot of foot traffic coming in. And so that that's how these programs and, and these initiatives are, have been born over the last few years is really bringing these focus groups and these roundtables together to understand what, what are some of the crux of the issues. And, and obviously, we've all probably have heard so many different stories about the diagnostic journey that can be an odyssey for many to try to get to a proper diagnosis early on which of course leads to enrollment into clinical trials and trying to understand if a therapy is is effective and most likely more effective the earlier you get it, right? And that that probably seems very logical to most people. But if the longer we wait for those diagnoses, the, the harder that gets. And that's the same component around genetics. I mean, genetics has become a cornerstone of where a lot of the research is looking at and going, and certainly across the globe. And so if we can create a genetic testing and counseling cornerstone as well as part of our portfolio of what we not only offer someone who has been diagnosed with ALS, but then potentially their family and others, so we have a better understanding, and maybe that's when we start really preventing ALS. And that's beyond exciting it's it's mind-blowing to think that that could be in our near future but i but i think it could be and i and i know there are many others who agree with that well you said bold at the outset and i can't think of something that would that sounds bolder and bigger than that um you know you we talk about some of the challenges of continuing this fight during a pandemic when so much of life has gone virtual that of course continued throughout much of 2021 at the same time 169 walk to defeat events across the country. The CEO SOAK rolled out in a major way this year and in communities across the country. Significant engagement on Giving Tuesday. And it's for those listening at home, it's not too late. Uh, Every day can be Giving Tuesday, but reflect a little bit on the resiliency and the engagement of the community. It's quite amazing. I think at the outset of the pandemic, everyone was pretty scared. and I would say, you know, even within a few months, you know, you, everyone knows, you know, March 2020, like that, that was right. the moment, right? And I think by May or June, the reality of the situation really started to set into the minds of many leaders across the entire sector. And I have been heartened and impressed by how many people have not only stepped up, but stepped up in a really big way. And I think that resiliency is, a, is really connected to not only the importance of this cause, but the devastation that it does cause our families and the importance of, of still moving forward. So, you know, while the, the walks went virtual and they're still raising tremendous amount of, of money and, and really helping to connect people, you know, we, we definitely saw a bit of a dip. We're still seeing it now. But what's amazing is how innovative people became on really engaging in different ways. You mentioned the CEO soap. I mean, I, I participated in an event in Pittsburgh, got completely soaked. <laughs> it was so fun and it's such a great event. And that's actually where that event started. And I, I believe that this community recognizes, again, what I said earlier, we can't stop, right? Yeah. We can't stop. We're going to have to become nimble. And I personally believe that in some ways, this is a forever change for us. For all of us, you know, this hybrid world we're living in is probably going to go into the future. Maybe the way that our peer-to-peer fundraising 
um, has happened, whether that's walks or galas or golf tournaments, you know, those might shift too. And we're starting to see that. So you call it resiliency. I call it innovation and nimble and, uh, and really saying, how do we reimagine or rethink the world ahead of us? And, and our community's been ahead of, um, on many aspects of that level. Absolutely. Um, you know, Colony, there's still several weeks left in 2021. We've rolled out some new ways to engage with people, whether that's the Research Matters newsletter, the, the Care Matters newsletter. But as you think ahead, what are some ways that folks at home can kind of join the fight and, and stay engaged in the work? Yeah, there are several weeks left in, in 2021. I, I think three or four at this point when we're talking um, and I think, again, you know, I mentioned the year-end report. I, I would really encourage people to take a look at it because there's so much good information. And I think you'll find something that really resonates with you. There are ways to get involved with your local community, whether it is uh, joining one of the events that I just mentioned, or, you know, please, one of the easiest things to do is to sign up as an advocate and just get advocate alerts. And then you start to just see what the topic, and I would encourage that. And then there's a lot of ways to, to volunteer, whether it's locally or with the, the home office, we have a lot of different uh, committees and different working groups and things to help solve these problems. And uh, I was just hosting a, an international meeting this morning, and it was amazing to me. There are about 200 people from all over the globe on the Allied Professional Forum, and they were talking about you know, challenges of caregiving, the challenges of the relationships, all the things that many of us know. And people are really trying to say, okay, now that we've identified or framed the problem, what are some resources that we can do, we can have, or we can develop? And that's where we're at. So we, I welcome you and your family and friends to get involved in ways that resonate with you so we can help solve these problems together. And we will be sharing links in the show notes so people can take their choose their adventure and figure out a way to get involved. Colony, it sounds like you've got a lot of work ahead of you, so we will let you go get back to it. But thanks again for your time this week. Thank you. Great to talk with you as always. And I, I wish everyone a happy holiday, a great new year, and hopefully we'll be talking again soon. Well, thank you again to Colony Palas for her time and insight this week. And thanks to you for listening and for all that you do in the fight against ALS. If you missed our year-end report, we'll share a link in the show notes. And you can share it with your friends to spread the word and encourage them to subscribe to Connecting ALS while you're at it. That is going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, please find time to rate and review us. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.